The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. One of the most uh, powerful and universal forms of communication is music. In almost every single culture, uh, has some sort of music that defines its way of life. Music taps into certain parts of the brain that, uh, that is an ideal way to create memories, uh, maybe push agendas, or even teach truths. In fact, music has such an effect on the brain that there are stories of music having the ability to tap into places with, uh, with patients that have dementia that uh, normal conversations can't. I remember seeing a story one time uh, about an elderly gentleman that was suffering from dementia to the point where he couldn't recognize his wife uh, any longer and she would come and visit him every day and there was one day that the music therapist came and and worked with him and and as she did she turned on some music uh, from the time that they were courting and he he sat up and and perked up and, and looked over at his wife and said well honey shall we dance and uh, that music just taps in uh, to the brain in areas that we don't often think about the church recognizes this very often you may forget much of what I say this morning but you may leave here singing once in Royal David City. Uh, because of this, the church historically has been very intentional on, uh, and, and very careful in its hymnody. Up until recently, the church has been very deliberate to uh, choose songs that are not only musically interesting, but also are doctrinally appropriate uh, for uh, the people of faith that's rich in Orthodox biblical di- uh, doctrine. Uh, it serves to not only worship our Lord and Savior, because he loves to hear truths about himself uh, be sung to him and, and, and prayed to him, but it also is a way that, that teaches us uh, Orthodox theology. In 1848, Cecil Francis Alexander was attempting to teach through the Apostles' Creed with her children's Sunday school class. And knowing that this was a lofty goal, she decided to set the ideas of the Apostles' Creed uh, poetically to music. From that endeavor, she published a book called Hymns for Little Children. And her most famous works in this book uh, were All Things Bright and Beautiful and A Green Hill Far Away. And this once little-known Christmas song called Once in Royal David City. It's not a song that you're going to hear on Cool 108 this season. It's certainly not a song that you would even hear on KTIS. Chris Tomlin has not made an update of this song yet. And in fact, when I did a Spotify search this week, uh, the only name that I recognized other than the King's College Choir that has ever done this song was that it was recorded by Mary Chapin Carpenter a number of years ago. But Once in in Royal David City is perhaps... One of the best songs that we can sing and study because it highlights the humanity of Jesus and our future with our exalted Lord. And so there, there are really six verses total in this song, but uh, it goes sort of in pairs. So the first two are a theme, the next two are a theme, and the final two are a theme. So that's how we're going to look at it uh, today. The first one is, is that we need to consider who Jesus is. We should consider who Jesus is. The very first verse is introductory. It describes the scene of the first Christmas. Once in Royal David City stood a lowly cattle shed 
where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was the mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. So the first thing that we should see here is the circumstances in which Jesus was born. Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. Uh, you know, uh, historically speaking, Jesus wasn't more than likely born in those uh, sort of manger scenes that we see on lawns and, and on people's uh, shelves. More than likely, he was either born in one or two different places. One could have been a cave in which uh, uh, stable animals would have stayed in order to protect themselves from the elements and from predators. And the other one would have been in the lower area of a relative's home. Uh, the inn that we typically think of of being a really grumpy front desk worker at the Super 8 Motel is not the vision that we would have seen in the first century with Jesus. More than likely, the inn was a relative's house, and because so many people were coming for the census at that time, relatives had flooded the upper part of the house, and the only spot that, that they had left, especially for someone that's going to be making a lot of noise, like a woman birthing a child, was sent into the, the lower part it was a very dirty place and a very unexpected place for a baby to be born, let alone the king of the universe. And also notice the normalcy of Mary's description. She's just a mother. This line was, was used to highlight the Apostles' Creed when it says that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Other than the fact that she was obedient to God's call and that she carried the Lord Jesus Christ to term, there is nothing special about her. She's very ordinary. She's doing what every mother does with her child. Tends to, to him. Now the second verse is where it really starts getting good. He who came to earth from heaven. So whereas uh, before he was only presented as this baby uh, in, in a manger, now the hood is taken off and Alexander shows us who he really is. That he is God and Lord of all. And it can be tempting to think that Jesus Christ got his beginning when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, in the womb of Mary. However, the Bible is very clear that Jesus had two uh, natures uh, to him. Uh, he had a divine nature and he had a complete human nature as well. It was this... Uh, it wasn't a competing duality, but rather a, a strange symbiosis in which he, ex he existed both as God, 100% God, and 100% man at the same time. John communicates this in John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So Jesus has been eternally existing. Everything in the universe, John tells us, was created through him. And then a few verses later, in, in verse 14, he writes this. The word, meaning Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. He was an eyewitness of it. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And at Christmas, Mary was laying down her baby 
who was God in the flesh. And one of the reasons that Jesus was so disregarded uh, throughout his life uh, was the expectation that they would have seen as what God incarnate should have been. In the minds of most, and even if we were to come up with what God should be like in the flesh, many of us would tend to think of him as some sort of Marvel superhero, one that comes and just kicks butt and takes names and, and saves the world and all sort of stuff like that. But that's not Jesus' story. He was born into a poor family, literally among smelly barn animals. The lack of sterilization and sanitation would make many of our heads spin for a labor and delivery room, that is. But this is completely counterintuitive to the nature of his birth, and it was a statement that God the Father chose that his son would be born in this way so that from the very time that he took his first breath, he would show what kind of God he is. He is not interested in the high and lofty. He is not interested in being uh, wearing the finest clothes and, and, and being lauded in that sort of way. He's not interested in being the star of the show. He is interested in humility and humble circumstances. And so Alexander writes, and his shelter was a stable. And his cradle was a stall with the poor, mean, and lowly lived our Savior holy. You see, one of the reasons that Jesus came to earth in the manner that he did was not only to show the kind of God that he was and is, but also to show us what, to show us a prototype of what he wants his people to be like. Of course, we all have different dispositions and situations and experiences and all that. But what if we, this Christmas, asked God to make us more humble? What if we asked him to help us be more simple? To strive to not be the center of attention we can desire a quiet life. God came in the most below average way so average people like you and like me can be more like him. And second, we should marvel that Jesus relates to us. We should marvel that Jesus relates to us. And in 1967, uh, the rendition of The Jungle Book uh, by Disney, they added a character named King Louie. And he was this fun character who was this ape that was trying to gain knowledge of fire from Mowgli so that he could be more human. And the song that he sung uh, in that musical was called uh, uh, I Want to Be Like You. And this is what he sung. He said, now I'm, I'm not going to sing like this guy, by the way. Now I'm the king of the swingers. Oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop. That's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town and be just like the other men. I'm tired of monkeying around. Ooh, oobity-doo, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you, talk like you. You'll see it's true. An ape like me can be a human too. 
And it's a charming scene. And Ape thinks that he has reached the ceiling. And if he could become a human, then he could break that glass ceiling and everything would open up for him. And of course, that's, that's ridiculous and impossible. But at Christmas, however, we find that when Jesus took on human flesh, he wasn't stepping up the next rung of the ladder of beings. This wasn't an upgrade for him. <laughs> Rather, in taking on flesh, this was a massive downgrade. The king of the universe, God, coming as a person. Here he was from eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, the entire cosmos, everything that we, that we see in the physical world and everything we don't see in the unseen world, everything that is outer space that we've observed so far, even that stuff that is so far out there that our telescopes can't even reach them yet. He it was created through him. In him, scripture tells us, we live and move and have our being and yet in taking on flesh. Jesus was making himself much lower than what he was. We're going to look more deeply at that next week, but for now, we need to see that it's a, it's a very good and a very important thing that Jesus became like us. In verse 4, Alexander writes this, For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was, he was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness and he shareth in our gladness. Friends, the, this is amazing news. When we think of Jesus, we, 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 we tend to think of his, his work on our behalf. And, that, and, and that's good. We think of him living the perfect life that we couldn't live. Him, him being on the cross and, and dying and taking the punishment for our sins. And him raising from the dead to show his victory and his ascension into, into heaven. And all those things are, are very, very good. But if all we do is meditate on those big and glorious and marvelous and wonderful things uh, of Jesus and, and don't pay attention to these other things, it's like we're only getting a slice of the gospel pie. What this verse encourages us with is the wonderful truth that not only did Jesus Christ come to be a servant on our behalf, but because he was fully human, he relates to us. He knows what it's like. His ministry just doesn't assure us of salvation and, and forgiveness. But in his humanity, he can meet us wherever we are. Whatever is going on in life. Kids, he knew what it was like to be like you. He had to learn to tie his shoes. He had to learn to read. He had to deal with kids on the playground that weren't always the nicest. He felt growing pains in his bones when he grew taller. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, he says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people, meaning he learned things. As uncomfortable as it is, Jesus went through puberty. He knew what that was like. He learned to socialize. He learned to be a good friend. And think about it for a moment. The uncreated one whom 
all things are held together, who is from eternity past, who is completely self-sufficient in and of himself, not dependent on anyone else, now had to learn to be dependent on a mommy and a daddy. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Joseph received the dream and the vision from God that Herod was sending people into Bethlehem in order to slaughter all the children, he had to trust in his father and, and take his father's leading in order to be the one who would, who would fulfill all of the law of Israel. He was dependent on his parents bringing him to Jerusalem very early on to be dedicated to the Lord. And if we want to get real for just a minute, many of us struggle every single day with things like sadness and loneliness and depression and anxiety and, and, and many of us grieve and, and we hurt. Jesus has been there. He knows what it's like. When Jesus went to Bethany and he saw all the people that were so distraught about his friend Lazarus that had just died, John tells us in John eleven thirty five 35 that Jesus wept. The God of all creation felt grief when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to God the night before he was to be killed. Anxiety was so heavy upon him that drops of blood came through the capillaries of his forehead. And Luke 22 tells us that being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When Jesus was being crucified, naked and alone, all of his friends having ditched him. He knew loneliness and betrayal. But he also knew joy. He celebrated weddings. He celebrated feasts and delighted in healing people. Jesus knew 100% what it was like to be like you and I. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. So why is this important? It's important because Jesus knows where we're at. And we can go to him. He didn't just show up and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to get you out of bondage, I'm going to get you out of sin, and I'm going to get you into the gates of heaven. But between that time of, of uh, redeeming you and when you get to heaven, you know what, guess what, it's all up to you. No, Jesus right now wants to comfort us. Jesus right now wants us to go to him and confess our sins and struggles. Family and friends are great and they can be a great comfort, but it's not the same as going to the one who knows exactly what it's like to go through what you are going through. Jesus is like that. Psalm 23 tells us, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, no evil. Why? Because you're with me. It's a very present help in time of trouble because Jesus has been through it all. He can wrap his arm around you and say, listen, I know that it's tough, but I'm here. And I'm here to help. And unlike others, 
that help that he offers is 100% effective all the time. Jesus came in human flesh to do the work that he was called to do on our behalf, and part of that work is experiencing life and all that it has to offer. The good and the bad, so that he could be the perfect comforter, healer, and redeemer. So we need to see Jesus in that way and marvel that he was like us. And third and finally, we need to look beyond the baby. Look beyond the baby. At Christmas time, man, I love Christmas time. There's so many great symbolic images. You know, uh, the wreath up there with Christmas lights. I mean, Christmas trees and candy canes and cookies and movies and parties and, and ugly Christmas sweaters. Come on, like, these are good things that we love them. But perhaps the most important of all of these is, is the scene that we see on people's lawns and in front of some churches, uh, the scene of the manger. The wise men, his parents and animals all looking on baby Jesus in wonder and amazement. And as hard as it would be to do, we need to take our gaze off of such scenes and focus them squarely on the exalted Lord as he is now and what it's going to be like when we see him face to face. Alexander writes, Our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. Indeed, now uh, we see Jesus on the pages of Scripture. We see evidence of him in, in our lives. We see his work through the people of the church. We see his work in our hearts. But Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he said, now we see only a reflection as a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. John echoes this in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Dear friends, we're, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. There's coming a day now in which we'll see Jesus for what he is and who he is and all of his glory. And through his great love to those that have trusted in him, we will finally be changed into his image and his likeness. The verse continues. It says, For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And he leads his children on to the place where he has gone. So at, at, <laughs> at Christmas time, we, we, we look at this this porcelain figure of a baby laying in a haystack and we get nostalgic. However, the figure is only pointing to the one who, uh, whose words in John 14, 13 said that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself. So that where I am, you will be also. So many of us will be having gatherings and parties and 
festivities and galas in the coming days and weeks. Either we'll be invited to a place or we'll invite people over to ours. In both cases, it is, uh, it is up to the person who was invited to go to that, that thing. But imagine with me, you were invited to uh, the biggest, most exciting, most extravagant, most joyful Christmas shindig that you could possibly imagine. You get all dolled up with your sweaters and your whatever, your reindeer hats. and You get in your car. You put the key in. The engine won't turn. You can't go. The only way is if someone brings you, you could call your friends, but you're really not sure if they were invited either. So you don't want to call your friends and say, hey, can you give me a ride over to Jimmy's? He's got this great party. Well, he had no idea, but so you don't want to offend him, so you're just sort of stuck. But all of a sudden you hear a, a, a knock at the door and you open it up, and who is it? It's the host of the party. And he says, come on, I, I heard you're having troubles. You know what, take, come with me, I'll, I'll take you there. Now that'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Uh, every one of us has been invited to the celebration, the party that's going to be going on in heaven. And the call is out there. But folks, our sin has killed our engines. And we can't turn them on ourselves. We cannot get there. But then Jesus says, you know what, I've got a ride. It's called my sinlessness, and it's called my righteousness. My death and my resurrection uh, is the door and the, and the key that'll turn it on. And if you still aren't sure, guess what? I'm going to be the one that drives you there. I've come for you. Will you get in and let me take you there? You see, Christmas isn't about the cookies. It isn't about the decorations. It's not about the Christmas cards. It's not about all those things. We could strip away all of those things. We'd still have Christmas. Because Christmas is about a child who is God that took on flesh to live a perfect life that you could not live. It's about a baby that would grow up and would be tortured so that we could go free. It was one that would be put on a cross, not against his will, but completely willingly to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. He was raised three days later to show his victory over sin and death and that he has the power to meet us wherever we are and take us to where we need to be. There is grace out there, but it needs to be taken by faith. The Bible tells us that your goodness and your good works will never get you through those doors. Rather, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be redeemed. You can be made new. You can experience Christ's presence with you today in all of your days. And so the message of Christmas is, are you just celebrating a figurine in, in, in some sort of manger scene? Or are you taking upon Christ's call on your life to say, trust in me? Christmas is about you following Jesus. And there's one more quick thing that Cecil Alexander writes that, that caps all this off. She just got done summarizing here in John 14, 3, but 
Now she looks beyond this, this stable and this manger and shows us what life will be like on that great getting up morning. She writes, What we will see is not in that poor lowly stable with oxen standing by. We shall see him but in heaven set on God's, as God's right hand on high. So how is it assuring is that? That when we get to heaven, it's not going to be a baby laying down there being dependent on his mother. We're going to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ still in earthly flesh, yet still fully God. In his vision, John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it was fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like a shining sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now, I don't know what that's actually going to look like for us. But it's going to be awesome. Terrifying but awesome. And what about us? Alexander crowns us off by saying, where like stars his children crowned all in white shall wait around. Now honestly, that sounds boring. Just wearing some sort of crown and a white robe and we're just all sitting around waiting for something to happen. Friends, waiting is the worst. But here, I think the hymn writer is somewhat mistaken. Heaven is not going to be boring. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like. I've never actually been there before. Uh, but I know that we'll enter a worship service like we've never experienced before. This is great singing with y'all. But we're going to enter into a worship service that has already started and it will never end. And we're going to close out our morning by looking at how John described it in Revelation chapter 4. He said, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door, and the first voice that I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, might, what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of, of an emerald surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. 
Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like, this, like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and back were around the throne on each side. The first creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Man, this is getting weird. They were covered with eyes all around and in, uh, all around and inside. Day and, and this is where it's awesome, day and night. They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and whoever is and, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Friends, Christmas exists for this to be our future. Let's go there together. Father, Once in royal David city stood a lowly cattle shed where